Hello, and welcome to the Herodotus Podcast. This is Episode 4, Naked Ambition, Book 1, Chapters 6 through 14. Last time, we looked at Herodotus's initial foray into historical analysis. After reporting a Persian account of the origins of the enmity between East and West, the historian remarks, For my part, I will not say that these things happened one way or another, but I know the person who first committed unjust acts against the Greeks, and so will advance my history to speak of great and small cities alike. For many states have now become small that were once great, and those that were in my time great were previously small. Knowing that good fortune for humans never lasts long, I will discuss both equally. Today, we're going to pick up on that remark. The first barbarian, which is to say the first non-Greek, Herodotus uses the terms interchangeably, to have made war on the Greeks was... Croesus, king of Lydia. Who, you ask? Well, don't you worry. You'll definitely become well acquainted with him, as we'll be spending plenty of time with the ill-fated king over the next few episodes. He was, as Herodotus states, the ruler of all people living west of the river Halys in Asia Minor. Before we continue, a geographical note. Asia Minor, where our narrative will be focused for some time, is synonymous with Anatolia, the westernmost section of the Asian continent that juts out into the Aegean Sea. To its north is the Black Sea, and on its northwest shore are two straits, the Bosphorus and the Dardanelles, with the Sea of Marmara between them, that connect the Black Sea to the Aegean, and thus to the Mediterranean. In short, we are talking about modern-day Turkey, or at least the part of it that sits on the eastern side of those straits, and is geographically part of the Asian continent. The Kingdom of Lydia, as we shall see, was a powerful state that occupied the western half of Anatolia, thus serving as a bridge between the Greek world and the kingdoms that lay farther east. You can find a map of the kingdom on this episode's page at theherodotuspodcast.com. Although Herodotus identifies Croesus as the first Easterner to make war on the Greeks, he nevertheless observes that Croesus was not some Greek-hating despot. While he conquered and exacted tribute from some Greeks, that is to say, the Ionians and Aeolians, Greeks living on the shores of Asia Minor, he nevertheless struck up a friendship with others, specifically, as we'll see, the Spartans. Before Croesus, Herodotus grandly asserts, all Greeks were free. You might think that, with this segue to the specific actions of Croesus, who was on the throne from 560 to about 546 BCE, that Herodotus would now turn to the life and times of the Lydian king. But, oh no, our narrative now leaps backward in time by over a century, as Herodotus explains how Croesus's ancestors, a family called the Myrmnads, first took power in Lydia. Before the Myrmnads, Herodotus says, it was the descendants of Heracles who ruled the kingdom for an impressive 22 generations, or 505 years. The final king in this line was named Candales, and the story of how Croesus's great-great-grandfather took the throne from him is one of the best known in all of the histories. It's so good, in fact, that I can't resist telling it in its entirety. King Candales was in love with his wife, and, being in love with her, he believed her to be by far the most beautiful woman in the world. 
In this belief, he praised her beauty extravagantly to Gyges, son of Daskalus, who was his favorite among his bodyguards and to whom he entrusted his deepest secrets. Soon thereafter, Candales, destined for misfortune, said to Gyges, I suspect that you don't believe me, Gyges, when I've spoken to you about my wife's beauty, for people's ears are less trustworthy than their eyes, so you really must see her naked. Gyges cried in response, My lord, what an unwholesome thing you command, ordering me to see the queen naked? A woman strips herself of her clothing and her shame at the same time. Long ago, sound moral principles were established, and even now must be obeyed, among which is this. Look upon that which is yours. And while I have no doubt that the queen is the most beautiful of all women, I beg you not to ask lawless things of me. And so Gyges, dreading that something terrible might result from this situation, turned the king down. Nevertheless, Kendalis persisted, replying, Take heart, Gyges, and don't be afraid. I'm not testing you with this command, and no harm will come to you from my wife. I've devised a way for you to see her so that she'll never even know you've laid eyes on her. I'll hide you in our bedroom, behind an opened door. I'll come in, and my wife will follow. There's a chair that sits near the entrance to the room. On it, she'll place each piece of her clothing as she takes it off. You'll be able to watch her entirely unobserved. Then, when she moves from the chair toward the bed and turns her back toward you, take care she doesn't see you slipping out through the doorway. Gyges, realizing that he had no choice, gave in, and so Candales, when it was time for bed, led the bodyguard into the bedroom. His wife followed soon thereafter. When she entered and placed her garments on the chair, Gyges saw her. As she turned her back and headed toward the bed, he slipped out. But the queen saw him leaving. Although she felt ashamed when she realized what her husband had done, she neither cried out nor let on that she knew anything, since she was intent on punishing Candales. For, among the Lydians, as well as among almost all barbarian peoples, it is considered a great shame for even a man to be seen naked. For a time, she kept quiet, giving no hint of her intentions. However, as soon as day broke, she readied the household servants whom she knew were the most faithful to her, and summoned Gyges. Assuming that she knew nothing of what he had done, he came when called, as he usually did when the queen summoned him. When he arrived, the queen said to him, I'm giving you a choice, Gyges. Pick whichever option you like. Either kill Candales and seize the kingship of Lydia with me as your wife, or you yourself must immediately die, so you won't follow any more of Candales' orders and see things that you shouldn't. Either he, who contrived the plan, or you, who violated our customs and saw me naked, must die. Gyges was left speechless. After a few moments, he begged the queen not to force such a choice on him. However, he could not dissuade her, and realized that it was truly unavoidable that either he kill the king or be killed himself. He chose to save himself. Then he asked, Since you're forcing me to unwillingly kill my master, I'd like to hear how we're going to lay our hands on him. The queen replied, By using the same hiding place where he displayed me to you, naked, you'll kill him in his sleep. When they had arranged the plan and night had fallen, Gyges was kept as a prisoner and had no means of escape. The queen led him into the bedroom and, handing him a dagger, concealed him behind the same door. After a little while, he crept out and killed the sleeping Candales, and so Gyges gained both the king's throne and his wife. And so Herodotus ends the story. But all was not well in Lydia. 
the historian notes that some Lydians took up arms in anger at Kendalis' fate. The supporters of Gyges thus made an arrangement with them. They proposed asking the Delphic Oracle, the priestess of Apollo at Delphi, in Greece, whether Gyges was the rightful king. If she backed him, that would settle the matter. But if not, the throne would revert to the family of Candales, the descendants of Heracles. The oracle affirmed that Gyges was king, but with a proviso. The descendants of Heracles would, she announced, get their revenge on the line of Gyges five generations in the future. Ominous words, to be sure, but this utterance met the fate of so many other predictions. As Herodotus says, it was, quote, a prophecy that the Lydians and their kings disregarded until it was fulfilled. End quote. Without risk of spoiling anything, remember those words. Gyges' story concludes with Herodotus's description of the remarkable objects that the Lydian king sent to Delphi, presumably as thanks for the oracles solidifying his hold on the throne. This was notable, as it was primarily Greek city-states, not foreign kings, who sent votive offerings to Delphi. The fact that Delphi was revered across the Greek world meant that a city could build up political cachet by displaying their eye-catching valuables there, where Greeks from all over would be able to see and, presumably, marvel at them. In the case of Gyges, Herodotus reports that he sent many silver offerings and an immense amount of gold, among which were six massive golden bowls, each of which weighed over 1,700 pounds. These incredible offerings were stored in the treasury of the Corinthians, as Gyges was on good terms with Kypsilus, the ruler of Corinth, about whom we'll hear more soon. So ends chapter 14, and the section of the text I'll cover today. You can see, I think, why the story of Gyges and Kendalis' wife is so well-loved. With the tight focus and psychological depth of a Hitchcock film, the vignette centers on a woman who is the polar opposite of the passive female figures who populated last episode's chapters. Painfully aware of her own objectification, she doesn't hesitate to exact revenge on her blithely unaware husband, even, like a femme fatale, using another man to do her dirty work. I always chuckle at Herodotus's implication that Candali's big mistake in the first place was being in love with his own wife. However, this isn't the only time that Gyges makes an appearance in Greek literature. Another famous story about the king dates from the better part of a century after Herodotus wrote the histories, in Plato's Republic. In Book Two of the Republic, Glaucon, Plato's brother, advances a philosophical argument by citing the story of Gyges, whom he casts as a shepherd in the service of the king of Lydia. When an earthquake reveals a cavern near where he tends his flocks, Gyges descends into the earth to find a gigantic bronze horse, inside of which is a corpse with a ring upon its finger. Gyges takes the ring and soon discovers that by adjusting it, he can turn himself invisible. He then contrives to get himself sent to the palace where, you guessed it, he seduces the queen, murders the king, and takes the throne for himself. The point that Glaucon uses this story to illustrate is that people only act with justice because they are forced to by society. Give even a saint a magic ring that allows him to commit any act he wants with complete impunity, and his actions would be indistinguishable from those of an amoral monster. Now, we shouldn't let these fantastical stories obscure the fact that Gyges was a real historical figure. There is independent verification of his existence in the form of Assyrian scribal records. The Assyrian Empire, at the time of Gyges' reign, dominated much of modern-day Iraq and Iran, the eastern Mediterranean coast, and Egypt. These scribal records document that around 664, the Assyrian king Ashurbanipal received at Nineveh 
his capital, a diplomatic envoy from one Gugu of Ludi. This Gugu was apparently inspired to contact the king as a result of the appearance of the Assyrian god Asu in his dreams. It's more likely, however, that his real motives had something to do with the hordes of raiders that had lately been raising havoc in Anatolia. Assyria, the equivalent of a global superpower at the time, would have made a potent ally. While it doesn't appear that that alliance was ever formed, we do know that Ashurbanipal was bemused by this foreign king's outreach, as he'd never heard of him or his land, and even had trouble finding a translator who spoke his language. Gyges also makes an appearance in Greek poetry, a fact that Herodotus makes note of. Two poets who mention Gyges, Alcman and Archilochus, were both active in the middle of the 7th century, near the end of Gyges' reign. Both mention him in a way that emphasizes his wealth, power, and grandeur, which suggests that those qualities would have been closely associated with the Lydian king in the Greek imagination. Alcman brags that the muses have made him, quote, greater than King Gyges, son of Daskalus, end quote. Archilochus, more colorfully, writes in character as a man who disavows envy or desire for great wealth or power, or so it seems. The following lines exist only as a fragment of a larger poem, and it isn't entirely clear what followed them. The affairs of gold-rich Gyges are no concern of mine. Jealousy hasn't seized me, nor do I envy works of the gods, or long for great dominion. These things are far from my eyes. Again, that these attributes, gold, superhuman activity, and regal power, are all attached to the name Gyges, would indicate that the king's name was a byword for those very things, much as we might say, rich as Croesus today. I'll talk more about the historical kingdom of Lydia and how the Greeks perceived it in a future episode. But for the moment, I'll just say that the name Lydia evoked similar associations, centralized royal power, and astonishing amounts of wealth, especially in the form of gold. These associations were no doubt reinforced by the gifts, mentioned above, that Gyges sent to Delphi, and which was even, as Herodotus notes, called Gygean, after its donor, by the Delphians. Nevertheless, all that wealth and splendor will not, as we'll see, be able to save Lydia from ruin when the time comes. Next time, we'll look at the descendants of Gyges, and the political and military decisions they made that built up the power and prestige of Lydia, all leading up to the last member of the Mermnad dynasty, the ill-fated Croesus. See you next time on the Herodotus Podcast. <laughs>